I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Lee Pelton, who is currently the president of Emerson College and who on June 1st will become the new president and CEO of the Boston Foundation. Throughout his career, Dr. Pelton has worked to address social justice issues. A common theme in his lectures, speeches, and writing has been to ask us to share our talents and resources with those who have not had the good fortune to participate in the bounty of life. Pelton grew up in Wichita, Kansas, where he graduated from Wichita State University. He left Kansas to earn a PhD in 19th century English and American literature and languages at Harvard University. He taught English and American literature at Harvard. And then after Harvard, he served as Dean of the College at Colgate and then Dartmouth College. He then served for 13 years as the president of Williamette University in Salem, Oregon. Lee then became president of Emerson College on July 1st, 2011. His leadership at Emerson has been called transformational, solidifying its presence in Boston and opening a campus in Los Angeles, as well as additional campuses internationally. Lee is also involved in a number of nonprofit organizations, bringing to them his informed take on racial equity. Lee, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful to be able to talk to you. As a philanthropist in Boston, I'm, I'm so excited that you will be leading the Boston Foundation soon. I think it's going to be so much fun to work with you and work with the foundation under your leadership. I thought I'd kick off with something fun, though. I was an English major, and as our listeners now know, because of the intro I did, you have a PhD in English and American literature. And so I am wondering who your favorite 19th century poet is. <laughs> no, it, it's it's like asking me who my favorite child is. Uh, I, I love them all, uh, but I, you know, but I studied 19th century English poets, the Romantics, um, by and large. I wrote my thesis and did some scholarly work on Tennyson, you know, the, the great Victorian writer. And I've been, you know, interested in American literature, modernist uh, literature. And I used to teach a course, one of my favorite courses was uh, on the rise of the Gothic novel. And that was, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet. So in your work, you worked mostly in academia so far in higher ed. Does, does your world ever feel like poetry to you? Well, uh, you know, I was a textualist, so I didn't come out of this, you know, sort of Yale criticism, critical theory. I came out of a practice of looking at a text and trying to make meaning uh, out of the text, trying to connect symbols and tropes and, you know, hieroglyphics, if I can call, call it that, in text. Yeah. Uh, and would do that also generationally, you know looking at one generation response to a previous, uh, you know, literary generation. And so I think of myself as a textualist. And so what that means, how that has helped me in my career and life is that I come to the world with the orientation of a textualist. I make my way around on a balance sheet and a, you know, operating budget and financial uh, text because they are texts to yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, and they tell a story. And so all the CFOs that I've worked with, I've said, listen, the numbers are important, 
But what, re what is really important is the story. And so your presentation should tell a story. And it shouldn't be like a, you know, a mystery novel where you have to wait until the end to figure out who's done it. It should be right there at the front, your, your thesis or whatever, you know, whatever the idea that you're trying to get across. And all of the numbers that you present should be in aid of uh, telling that story. So I, you know, I'm a textualist. I'm, I'm really kind of a, as I often say, kind of cultural or social anthropologist. And that has, you know, it's helped me in so many, many ways. That is, that is such a beautiful thing. I, um, I understand what you are saying so completely. We, when we started our work at the foundation, we only started the foundation four years ago. We, we do and did everything in spreadsheets first for exactly the reason that you're describing, that, that numbers really do tell a story, but they also tell you when you're completely off track Correct. And, and, and things are going to fall off. I love that you see the world that way. And so in your experiences in running different higher ed organizations, and in particular, I know the most about your work at Emerson and just how much you've grown that organization. I mean, you're really lauded for the work that you've done there and it, the students just adore you. Did you have a vision for the university going in or was it something that, was it kind of a story that you were writing as you were president there and overseeing Emerson? Well, I have, in higher education, I have taken jobs where I am needed, you know, where there is a discernible need or an issue. That was true at Colgate. It was certainly true at Dartmouth. It was true when I was being there, and it was true at Willamette University, where I was president for 13 years. It was also true at Emerson. And when I say an issue, I don't mean it in a problematic way, that there were deep problems at any of these institutions, but they were looking for something. And that something has always been to come in and strengthen institutional capacity and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And my belief has been that you begin any strategic plan with a set of values and a vision. You know, the prophet Isaiah said in the Old Testament that without a vision, people will perish. Uh, and so both values and vision will shape the work that you do. So wherever I've been, I have set about as best as I can. And as soon as I can, engaging the community, which is not just the on-campus community, but the board of trustees and, and uh, alumni and others, uh, citizens even, to help develop, to engage in a process, develop a vision and a set of values. So that's what we did at Emerson. Mm. Then we developed a strategic plan or pinnacles of excellence, as I like to call them, that were shaped by the vision that we had created. That's so interesting. Do, do you feel like the work that you've done for so many years in higher ed and understanding how those entities work as you move into your role as at the Boston Foundation, which will inevitably lead you to leaning more into Boston public schools and, to, and into public schools across the state. There's a, there's a conversation about how public schools deeply need the support, help, partnership of higher ed to mm -hmm. help lift up, give opportunity to provide guidance for the K through 12, especially the high school in, in that um, industry. 
Is there a role for higher ed in your opinion? Can they be doing something? Because higher ed has its its own story that's going to play out over the next decade or so. And so do you see a way that higher ed can help collaborate and lift up public schools across the state that aren't doing as well as, as maybe they could be or should be? Yeah, I, you know, I'll give you an example, then I'll ask your question more uh, generically. So the so-called pro-arts colleges and universities that include, you know, Berkeley, Emerson, New, New England Conservatory, what was Boston Conservatory, the Boston Arts College, mm-hmm. and the SMFA, yeah. the, the Museum School, which is now in Tufts, created, uh, founded the Boston Arts Academy. Uh, which is the city's only performing arts school. It is a so-called pilot school, which means that, you know, it's within the BPS footprint, but uh, we have to raise a third of the money to support the arts curriculum. Hmm. BPS pays for everything else, but we have to raise a third of the money each year uh, for the for the arts part. And so I am now, I was chair of the Boston Arts Board of Trustees for several years, and then I became chair of the the Boston Arts Academy Foundation Board of Directors. So my engagement there, I think, is at least nine years uh, now. And um, we've got a fundraising campaign of uh, $30 million to support the new building that's going to open, new facility that's going to open in the fall. Beautiful new building. Next uh, next year, and so these colleges are very engaged in the Boston Arts Academy. It, it's the case that uh, almost a hundred percent of the students who come to Boston to the uh, BAA uh, from very diverse backgrounds. Ninety seven percent of them will have been admitted to a college or a university. Many of them will go on into the arts fields, but other of them will become lawyers or uh, not that the world needs more lawyers, but they will become lawyers and uh, do lots of wonderful, meaningful things in the world. We provide scholarships for students for our institutions at Emerson. We have a whole scholarship for at least one BAA student each year. Amazing. And then we provide you know support in other ways, sort of retention for these students, once they get into college, at least from the first year to the second year, and uh, they use our spaces, and uh, some of our faculty uh, are engaged in the institution. So we, you know, we're deeply involved. I think we're a great, great example of that. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I I would say this generally that the the nation looks to colleges and universities to solve its most pressing problems, uh, and so we have an obligation to play in the larger society. Uh, I have a firm conviction with respect to that obligation. And so uh, wherever I've been, and it's been especially true in Boston, my civic engagement uh, exists outside of Emerson College, but in the city, because I believe that I have a central role to play uh, in the civic life of uh, Boston. Yeah. I sit on, I used to sit on at least a dozen probably more boards on various uh, nonprofits. And I've been engaged in some significant issues, not only locally, but nationally. After Sandy Hook, I was an outspoken proponent for what are now called common sense gun laws. And I got about 350 college and university presidents presidents to sign on to a letter. 
asking that we banned uh, so-called assault weapons. And I must tell you, to get 350 presidents to agree to anything is a challenge. But we, you know, we, you know, we got that done and and uh, got it to the White House. And I know that they read it and they got back to me about that. So that's great. Um, so that's you know, I in some ways I've used my presidency as a platform um, for my civic life. Yeah, but I think it's so important. Your your example is a perfect one in my mind because it it does seem that when there is partnership outside of the public school system or really in any case where where a public-private partnership can happen, private organizations are able to do a number of things that help the public organization push the envelope a bit. You know, the private organization can carry risk. The private organization is has the opportunity to dream and look forward farther than the public organization does. And I think the example you just gave of the arts academy is a perfect example of how a high school can really thrive in this city when it has the care and feeding, the love and nurturing that its partners in Emerson and the other schools provide for it. Do you, I mean, you network with a lot of leaders around the city and across the state. Do you feel that there are other corporate leaders and academic leaders who think that maybe the time is now to lean in more and do more of this? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm the vice chair of the, the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, and I can tell you with unqualified pleasure that people who serve uh, in various capacities and are members of the chamber are very much engaged in this issue. It comes up at almost every meeting that we have. Hmm. You know, it shows up or will show up in, in these various companies. So, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So, Thinking about your new role as the CEO of the Boston Foundation, you're taking over a role that Paul Grogan has served in for 20 years, and the Boston Foundation has done some incredible things for the city and for the state. What made you decide to move out of the academic world and into a role like this? What are you excited about? What what gets you excited? Well, it was a natural evolution for me, given my civic role and leadership uh, in the city outside of Emerson, or at least co-joined with Emerson. And, uh, you know, I, I say to students that you come to Emerson to be the persons you were meant to be. So, you, you know, you, you come to see yourselves in your own future. And I came to Emerson without knowing it <laughs> uh, to be the person I was meant to be. Huh. And that was to do what I'm about to do beginning June 1st. Yeah. As I jokingly say, I, I now will be able to do full-time what uh, I've been doing part-time um, for all of my life. You know, there's a definition of co- a college president is someone who lives in a big house and begs for money. Uh, <laughs> so, and so now uh, the tables are turned and I'll have the opportunity to be philanthropic yeah. uh, in very meaningful meaningful ways. And really be a guide. I think there's a number of philanthropists and interested folks in Boston who want to help make change and who want to lean in and support, but are looking for guidance and kind of a beacon in terms of where they they should spend time, money, go to, to learn about issues. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Are there particular issues that you are excited to lean into in the Boston Foundation? Do you feel like 
they've done such incredible work across the spectrum of areas. Do you stay grounded in those or do you feel like there are some things also that will be new to Boston Foundation? Well, I, you know, as someone once famously said, you can only have one president at a time. And so I'm not president yet. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, two months away from, from being president. But I, but I, but you know, there's some ideas that are percolating. Part of what attracted me to TBF was its remarkable history. It is a national treasure. Yeah. Even though it's called Boston is home for more than a century, it's it's what I call a pinnacle of excellence, whose, whose influence is deeply felt and emulated by community foundations from one end of the continent to the other. Yeah. You look at its history, it's authentically Boston, but it's also deeply American, and it's a, it's a, it's a proxy for the ideas and hopes about the unfolding future of, uh, of a country that's becoming increasingly diverse. And over time, it's evolved from what I describe as a kind of call and response funder uh, to a more strategic funder uh, focused on uh, seeding um, innovation and catalyzing change, as Paul likes to refer to it. And it's had remarkable and great leaders. And Paul has been one of those uh, for, for two decades. Yeah. I knew of Paul before I'd actually met him many years ago, and I was sitting on the board of uh, the Oregon Community Foundation, you know, I said to the CEO or the board chair, I said, there's a person there in Boston that you need to go see, because they're doing something really very interesting that not all community foundations are doing. And, you know, that was through the, the permanent fund for Boston mm-hmm. and have, having a discretionary fund. Right. Sizable discretionary fund that uh, most community college, uh, community foundations uh, do not have. Right. Yeah. No, I helped chair the fundraising for that a couple of years ago. And, and I do think that's so incredibly important because they bring perspective that the city might not have otherwise. It, you know, in the research projects that they do, Boston indicators for me, as I was really delving deeply into understanding the inequities in our city was an incredible resource to me. And I just think they do amazing work. And kind of on that topic and thinking about this pandemic and COVID-19, I'm curious about one, to start, how how did it affect Emerson? What was it like to be running an academic institution when the pandemic hit? And how has it sort of settled over the course of this year as we have the promise of vaccines and we're potentially headed towards recovery. Well, we had to reinvent Emerson College, as did most colleges and universities. They, they, they had to reinvent themselves. Yeah. I'll just give you an example. You know, we are a vertical college. We're not like, uh, I'll use the famous lines from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who describes the blue lines of Princeton. We're not that. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're in the middle of the city. We're vertical. But essentially, we, we transformed ourselves from a vertical college to a horizontal college so that all of our activities, administrative and academic activities, were in the top four floors. Uh, that meant that uh, 85% of the staff were working remotely. They're still working remotely. Uh, some of them will come back and will be uh, in those offices. Many of them will not. They will continue to work uh, remotely or uh, at least certainly have more flexibility in terms of working remotely. 
you know, like many colleges and universities, we, you know, we suffered significant losses in, in the spring term of last year mm. and going forward. But we were able to close those gaps through reductions here and there and, and cost savings and, you know, and, and, and cash on hand. You know, what I'm most proud of is that we did not have to lay off or fire a single employee. That's great. Not one. Wonderful. That comes from a value. Yeah. People first, people before institutions. So that's a value that helped, you know, guide us in that direction. Mm. I mean, staff and faculty made, you know, significant sacrifices in terms of uh, salary and increases in benefits. Um, but it was all done uh, with the purpose of, of uh, comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, the purpose of, of keeping uh, the community intact um, and making sure that the most vulnerable employees uh, at the college uh, could keep their jobs. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And, and it was so important um, to preserve as many jobs as possible through the pandemic. And how about students? How hard or easy was it to reach students who also fell into vulnerable categories and, and what sort of supports did they need yeah. um, in order to kind of stay engaged and, and continue at Emerson? Well, let me say that the entire college behaved heroically and continue to do that. Uh, faculty had to reinvent their classes from you know in-person yeah. classes to these flex hybrid classes. It seems easy, but it's not. It's very complicated. Yeah. required a lot, of, uh, a lot of work, a lot of creativity and uh, innovation. Uh, our positivity rate, our student positivity rate, the first semester was less than one third of a tenth of a percent. <laughs> Imagine that. Wow. And right now it's at, it's less than one third of one percent. Um, because we've all seen this sort of uptick in um, positive cases. I say that, yeah. say this, that none of that have been, would have been possible without students behaving in a way that was consistent with the health and safety of the community. And mm. they, were, they were heroic in that way. Nevertheless, like in the general population, there is COVID fatigue. Yeah. Emerson and every college and university and institution that I'm aware of, both for faculty and for, for students. I think most college and university presidents would say, well, we've been inundated with some serious mental health stresses in our student body. Yeah, They were exacerbated this year. I think that's also true at high schools and probably true at any of the K through 12 schools uh, as well. So we, we saw that, we're, we're, we're being attentive to that. On the financial aid side, you know, we increased our financial aid significantly to meet uh, the students and the families who were impacted uh, by, mm. you know, by COVID, the economic devastation and, uh, and, um, and so on. On the mental health side, are you seeing any solutions that are more scalable for students than one-on-one -on -one mental support? Well, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, the only answer that I can, I can just give you our response and the response of 
most colleges and universities is that we're just, we were, colleges and universities were already increasing substantially their mental health programs for students. Yeah. Students now come to colleges and universities with more, presenting more mental health adjustment issues than maybe 20 years ago. And so we, mm. so you, 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 there's been an enormous escalation in uh, mental health uh, support and counseling, student counseling. So we had to increase that substantially. Uh, yeah. And uh, we also uh, uh, increased the um, uh, counseling staff of color uh, for, uh, for that population uh, yeah. campus. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because it feels like coming through and out of this pandemic, what we're seeing, we spend a lot of time in food security and, and issues of poverty and issues of race and poverty combined. Mental health is just a massive, massive problem to, to which we have only this one-to-one -one solution. Yeah. And as the issue scales, the way that you're describing, and I think is perpetuated by issues exacerbated by COVID-19, it's going to be really important for us to try to get to scalable solutions on this or change the way that society operates, like one way or the other. Or, or the latter. I mean, it's, we're in a crisis and the, uh, I studied ancient Greek and the etymology for uh, the Greek etymology for crisis is change. Mm. That's what a crisis is. It's about change. And if we don't change, if we come out of this crisis doing in the post-pandemic world what we were doing before in terms of business or schools or whatever it may be, uh, then we have lost a massive opportunity. Yes. Uh, shame on us if we let that opportunity slip through our hands. So I, I'm right with you there. And, and you and I probably both can have conversations at a federal level about this, but locally, we, we both are empowered, I think, to really lean in and dig into how this change happens. And one of the things that I think about all the time right now is where do you start? because you know there's 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 the education system there is the creation of jobs there's the connectivity between those two things there's housing and food security and access to medicine and and good health there's racial equity there's there's safety and, and you know just in our city all of these things sort of circle and swirl and overlap and impact each other and do you have a point of view on that? Or how do you consider that from your vantage point? Well, uh, you, you use an important word here of equity, which some people confuse with equality. They're not the same, uh, you know, they're not, they're not the same thing. Right. And because equality is a input, equity is uh, an output. And so that when we talk about these equities or racial equities, we also have to understand that they intersect with, with other inequities in our society. I'll give you an obvious example. Near the end of his life, 
Martin Luther King Jr. said that the triple evils, those are my words, uh, mm-hmm. the United States were poverty, racism, and the war in Vietnam. He wouldn't have used the word that we're, I'm about to introduce right now, but what he was saying is that they're all intersectional. Mm-hmm. Cannot talk about poverty without talking about racism. And that the war in Vietnam took men and women from the lower economic ladder and sent them off to war. Right. Uh, and so when we, for my view, for instance, you really can't talk about K through 12 without talking about poverty. We, we often, you know, we use this phrase, the, uh, you know, the achievement gap. And it's not, it's not really uh, an achievement gap. It's an opportunity gap. Uh, because an achievement gap somehow, you know, assumes that a certain group of students are inherently capable of, you know, achieving at a certain level. But that's, that's not true. It's that they, the gap is an opportunity gap. Uh, yes. Because there are other, other children, like my own very privileged children, have access to opportunity uh, that other students do not have. And so they're set up to achieve, uh, whereas some other students are not. And so again, this is the intersectionality here that uh, when we we talk about the so-called achievement gap, which I call the opportunity gap uh, in the K through 12 system, we should be looking at the structural and systemic barriers that prevent these students from fully participating in life's bounty, whatever that may be. Yeah. And that's not necessarily money, right. it's access yeah. to networking and you know, other kinds of educational opportunities. And so our job really as a nation is to identify these systemic and structural barriers and do our very best to uh, either eradicate them mm. or remediate them significantly mm-hmm. so all of our students can uh, sit at the table. Yeah, I agree with you. I think not having louder, wider conversations about the notion of the opportunity gap and helping people understand what that means perpetuates maybe what was a more real thing to talk about you know, 20 or 30 years ago, this notion that that the American dream exists and that if it's this pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But I was being interviewed the other day by someone who was in his 20s about the guaranteed income work that we're doing in Chelsea. And he said, I can't understand that point of view at all. Like how in the world can people pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they're like, they're stuck in a hole. Like, you, you know, he's like, how did you, you gotta get out of the hole first. I think that's a part of the problem is that people with privilege feel like we're all standing on the same common ground and that we, we just don't have, you know, it, it's more out of naivety than anything else that we just don't have the perspective that some people could be sunk so deeply that, that right, they need to be lifted up first to be equal to your point about the, the equation right. rather than the outcome. And so will you use Boston Foundation to make that more part of the conversation? Certainly, certainly I will support you in that um, because I feel like it is, it's, an, it's important to, to the city. 
Yeah, I, you know, obviously in a in a broad sense, the but my 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 purpose in coming to PBF is is to recognize that the triple pandemic of COVID nineteen, the economic devastation, of course, the very public exposure of systemic racial disparities and everything that intersects with those right. that have long plagued our country now calls upon the Boston Foundation to once again, because it has done it in the past, right. to once again seize the moment uh, and help to write a new chapter for the city of Boston and its current and future residents. I think we all know that Boston, despite its best efforts and decades of uh, spectacular growth and prosperity, our city on the hill, as we like to call it, uh, continues to be a tale of two cities. Right. One prosperous and well off, and the other struggling to make ends meet. Uh, and one of the nations, become one of the nation's most expensive and economically unequal, uh, unequal cities. And the pandemics have only thrown these sharper relief. And so TBF has a big, important role to play with respect to addressing uh, these issues. Do you think, do you think there's a, a great moment now energetically with, uh, we have a new mayor in uh, interim mayor in office. Now we will have a new elected mayor at the end of this year. You're coming into TBF. We have, there's a lot of dynamic things happening in the city that focus on the care, the love, the hopes, the strategic vision for, for the city. Do you feel excited about the opportunity that maybe COVID-19 and all of these transitions are creating for the city in terms of it really having an opportunity to change? Absolutely. Wherever I spend time, I mean, I spend a lot of time in a lot of you know, civic organizations and businesses, there's just enormous energy mm. uh, around this issue some folks trying to figure out, well, what's my role? What, what, what can I do? What should I be doing? Others that have already rolled up their sleeves and have made, you know, significant commitments. You know, the new Commonwealth Fund, yeah. that, you know, which is an example. There's a Boston Equity Fund. There is funds, as you know, as TBF that are seeking to address this issue as well. So I, I think the challenge will be <laughs> Uh, frankly, is keeping the momentum going yeah. because we, in this country, we've had a kind of, uh, as I refer to it as a kind of call and response uh, history. There's a call and then we respond and, you know, we, 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 in this kind of Sisyphean way, we, we push this rock up the hill and then it rolls back down and there's another call and there's another response. And, you know, we develop an amnesia over time. Yeah. Uh, and um, so uh, I'm hoping that uh, this time there's enough, there's enough energy and commitment uh, around these issues that we will persist and be in it for the long haul. You know, I like to say that excellence is not about being something, it's about becoming something. Yeah. Because excellence is always, uh, it's always aspirational. And, uh, and that requires continuous improvement. Yeah. Uh, there's no quick fix, just continuous improvement. It's my hope that we're seeing the beginning of a commitment to continuous improvement uh, in all of these various areas. Yeah, I hope too. So how will you spend the next couple of months before you start Boston Foundation? You're graduating another class from Emerson College. So, so what's, what does your next, your transition period look like? 
well, let's say right now I have a I have my Emerson job, which is full time, and I have my TBF transition job, which is not quite half time, but it is uh, it's considerable. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm I'm right now I'm a listening and learning tour, yeah. uh, and that's been very helpful. And when I say a listening and learning tour, I mean not only internally but also with uh, trustees, uh, with wonderful committed people like you and her husband and, and other like-minded uh, philanthropists in this city. So that that's the work that I'm doing right now so that when I arrive on June 1st, that I'll, you know, that I will be uh, prepared to take on the, the task that's in front of me. Ready to roll. Well, we look forward to that time. I hope you have a great transition period between then and now. And I thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you. That's it's always great being in your company. And again, thank you for all that you do for this, for this city uh, and the region. It's, it's really quite meaningful. Thank you very much. And likewise, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with incoming CEO of the Boston Foundation, Lee Pelton. Boston is bursting with change right now, and it is exciting to think about what is possible under new leadership. There are so many in Boston who want to be a part of the change that they want to see in the world. And it is leaders like Lee who have the opportunity to help set the roadmap and pace for how we get to a more equitable and compassionate city. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.